Hang on just a second. Ephesians 6, and in verses 1 through 3, we have what I'm calling the obligations of Christian children. I want you to see something. Hey, why don't you two come sit right here so I can just preach directly into your faces. I got you too. I got, the, I got my, my target. I got, I got you lined up. Come here, Nathan. It's okay. Do you know what your name means? Nathan means he gives. He has given. And he certainly has. We're so blessed to have you. Everybody, hey, look at me. Look at me. In the Bible, God tells you what he wants for you as a Christian boy or girl to do. What he wants for you as a Christian boy to, or girl to do. And it's so simple. The Bible is a big book. Look at this. It's huge. There's so much in there. Do you know how many commands there are in the Bible? I don't either. I counted. There are a couple of different ways to count. You can count imperative moods. Way more of those in the New Testament than 613, by the way. Which we th- think that's the way you count the Old Testament Mosaic Law, 613 commands in the law. It's very simple what God wants for you. Do you know what it is? Do you know what God wants for you? Let me start it off, see if i got any kids can say it with me. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is, this is right. That's good. You know it. He then says, he then quotes Paul, the apostle, then quotes Ephesians, or, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, and says, Honor your father, your, honor your father and your mother, so that it will go well. Or wait, wait, for this is the first command with a promise, he says. And then he continues to quote, so it'll go well with you and you live long on the earth. Who wants to have a long and productive and happy life? Some of you are in those uncomfortable, forward-leaning pews. You're like, I don't know if I've got to sit on this much longer. I don't know if it's worth it. But we want to live a long time. Hey, who? look at me, young people. Who thinks your parents want you to have a long life? All of our parents. That's, that's one of the great goals of being a parent, is that the kids live a long life and bury us. And when, it's, when it's the right time. After we've lived a long life. <laughs> Not untimely buried. That would be uncomfortable. <laughs> children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. I have one last thing I want to say to the little children before you go downstairs. Do you know how in the world that Jesus thinks you're going to do this, Samuel? Do you know how God thinks you're going to bring this about? In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, he is speaking as a result of Ephesians 6, or 5.18. Does anyone know, anyone, anyone know what that says, Ephesians 5.18? Be filled by the Spirit with the result in verse 21 that you'll submit one to another. And then children, obey your parents. Now look, the Holy Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit of God. Now put that down. Yeah, that, that, nope. But they were not Muslims. I'd, you'd be in a lot of trouble. I've been a big, big no-no. Put your shoe up at the pastor. Now, now, here's the thing: if you have the Holy Spirit, He gave Him to you. God gave the Spirit to you for a reason. Do you know why? God gave you the Holy Spirit. Do you know why? Everybody in this room that's over the age of twelve knows why. The little children have the Holy Spirit so that they can 
Obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now think about that. That's your job as a Christian. When I ask you at the end of the day, young people, why? What, I'm sorry, what difference does it make today that you are a Christian? You should be able to say, well, I obeyed my mom and dad. All right, let's uh, pray for the little children as they head downstairs and sing a little bit with Miss Hannah. Father, we love you and bless you for these children. And we want to especially pray for your kindness on them, for your grace to them, that you would keep them in your hand, for you are a much better father than we could ever be, uh, infinitely better. And our only hope for their future is that you have them in your grip. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Go downstairs. It must be wonderful to have t- for, the pa- for the children to have their father as the pastor. It must be so wonderful they could just learn all those wonderful things that we have in church that Pastor Dave constantly studies, that he could teach them and teach them. He could just talk to them for hours on end. And, um, <laughs> and the truth is, the truth is that uh, the, the attention span grows over time. But the collective attention span often devolves or degenerates to the lowest common denominator. Still, we're, in some ways, when we do family devotions, we're still kind of in the goldfish attention span phase. And so we try to get it uh, said quickly. And uh, some of you are like, oh, we want that up here, too. All right, in your notes, I'm talking about the obligations of Christian children. It's my title for the message this morning for a little family Bible hour thing. And I have, uh, I think, five points and no poem. Yeah, five major emphases I want to bring out in this discussion and, and then uh, no poem. And what I'm, what I'm trying to emphasize here is the imperative mood, obey your parents. It's a commandment that Paul um, Christianizes. He says this is the responsibility binding on Christian children. And then he launches uh, in his explanation from the Mosaic Law, God's covenant stipulations for Israel, which he gave them at Mount Sinai. So the first thing I want to say when you have a command is it becomes a duty. And I want to talk about the concept of duty. It's one of my favorite words. It's one of my favorite words. The little kids can't get past it because it sounds like something else. But um, duty is uh, the, one of the motto words for the, for the United States Military Academy, duty, honor, country. You know? And um, when I was a plebe at West Point, uh, not even a plebe yet, I was a new cadet, we had to learn MacArthur's statement about duty, honor, country. Those three hallowed words reverently dictate what you can be, what you, must, what you ought to be, what you will be. They're your rallying points. And, and, and he launches into this discussion. Duty. Duty. What does this mean? And do you love it? I love it because I want to make something of myself. And I mean, I want my life to count. And all, all God's children know that you can't make anything of yourself, right? But you want your day to matter. You want your life to count. And so I'd like to know what it is I should be doing toward that end, toward, toward my life counting. And duty answers that question. At the end of watch, if you can sign off and the boss says, you did your duty today, that was a successful day. Now, who's the boss? Well, it's God. And when he places an obligation, I think the word duty is very helpful for us to understand uh, what our life is about. It really is, to me, a helpful organizing principle. So I thought, you know, I don't even know where this word comes from. I don't even know the origin of the word duty, and I wanted to, uh, to look it up. So there's a, a neat little website 
called the Online Etymology Dictionary, and I want to give you a, sp- a warning about etymology. Etymology means the origin of words, the history of how we got the word. The way something started in a tent somewhere is not how you're using it 500 years later. It doesn't work. You can't read old meanings back into present usage. We all know what duty is in our culture. There's four or five different possible definitions for the popular use of that word. We know what it is, but I think it's interesting to see where it came from. In the um, 1300s, it was from the French, and it meant an obligatory service which ought to be done, something that should be done. In other words, it meant 700 years ago what it means now. It's an obligatory service, what you must do. The force of that which is morally right was also a possible meaning, and it comes from an Anglo-French duty. Now what Anglo-French, that's English with French, why would we say English and French go together? Because, like peanut butter and chocolate, it turned out to be a good combination in about 1066 when a Frenchman became the king of England. His name was um, William, Bill. Bill the Conqueror, or Guillaume, if you're going to say the way his mama called him. Guillaume the Conqueror. And he uh, said, okay, the official language of England is now French, Francais. And so all the, all the French in English is because of that event. 300 years later, we're in Anglo-French saying things like dute, 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 okay? And it means what we use it to mean. But what, interestingly, that came from something else too. It goes back to Latin. I think it's really cool. French, D-E-U, that kind of root, due, owed, proper, just, like we have the word due, like your library books are due, same root for duty. You need to bring those back. They're due. And if, what if you have a fine? We'd call that what you do, what's due to be paid to the, the library. And if you belong to a club and you want to stay in that club, then you've got to pay your dues. See, it's all the same word group from back in, from French, which got it from Latin. And by the way, French is a romance or Latin language. So from the vulgar Latin, that's, that doesn't mean it's, it's, it's bad. It means it's a, a, a time frame of the, the use of Latin. Debutus. Debutus. Like a debutus card. From Latin, debutus, past participle of debere, to, to owe, originally to keep something away from someone. And so, um, and that comes from de, the, the beginning of a word in Latin. When you say de, it means away from. It's a preposition that you attack onto a Latin word. Apparently not a Latin scholar. And then haberi uh, is to have. To have, where we get the word have is from the Latin word haberi. But see how those sounds, have and haberi sounds the same, okay? So to have a way, is, that's the etymology of this word group, deberi. And um, so uh, to, to not have, <laughs> or to have to give to someone else. And so... Um, I just, I think that's very fascinating that debit and debt and do are all the same root, are all from the same place, from the Latin to have a way or to give to someone else what is due. And that's a fun uh, little rabbit hole I could run down. I like etymology, it's fun, but, it, but it's trivial. But what I have been able to do by this illustration is focus your attention on the concept of duty. It has always meant to, to owe somebody something. It's always meant something, you have an obligation that you are bound for whatever reason to give to someone else. And so I think my point one here is it's originally from the same root word as due or debt. Duty as a concept started with something owed, something owed. And this is deeply true for duty-minded people today. 
they feel like deep down if you have duty as a sense of your moral character as who you are and i'm looking around at people who do then you know for some reason this is owed that it is binding upon you and you need to produce it and i think most of our breakdowns in civilization come from dropping that ball from saying ah why am i carrying this around this is a heavy load i don't have to i don't have to do my duty i don't i don't want to be responsible for this anymore and what do we call that when someone doesn't do their duty? Shirking. Oh, no. Shirking their duty. That's a nasty sounding word. I wish I had the Latin for you or wherever we got the word shirking. That's a great word too, isn't it? But that's, that's what we do when we don't do what we're obligated to do. And um, I think that this is a universal concept throughout all cultures because, because God made us in his image. And by that fact we owe him ourselves because he made us we owe him our response of worship as his creatures so today we use this word to refer to something for which we're responsible duties and obligation we find placed on us regardless of how it got there and that is the next thing most of the obligations we tend to shirk we put on ourselves right we volunteer and say, I don't really like it anymore. I'm, I signed up for four years, but four months was too much. And I don't want to do this anymore. And, and what happens? Have you ever had that thought? Have you ever been in the middle of the tour of a duty that you said you would do something? And then you say, I don't really want to do this anymore. And, but, you, but you're there. You're signed up. So you, I have. You know what happens when duty kicks in? And you say, I don't feel like it. But duty says you, you, you owe this because you committed yourself. Okay, well, we figure out how to like it, even though I don't feel like it. And we move, and, and it's, a, it's a very helpful way of uh, arranging our resources. All right. How does a person get obligated to a duty? Bullet two. How does a person get obligated to a duty? Think about that. I think it's a fascinating concept. Because in Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, it wasn't because children wanted to have parents tell them what to do. They did not volunteer for this. The most fundamental duty as we start in our lives of obeying our parents was not uh, an option for us. We were just given parents, and then God said, obey them. See what I mean? Now, as adults, we put loads on ourselves. We volunteer for, you know, ladies' prayer meeting or whatever. I'm going to bring cinnamon rolls. Bring an extra. She'll bring it home to me if you want. But, uh, uh, well, I, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll put myself in, I'll volunteer to do something, and then, wow, man, three weeks ago I said I'd do this, but I don't really feel like it now. But now you, you do because you said you would, and so duty kicks in. Um, we, we do this to ourselves, sub-point A. This is where you volunteer for duty. By volunteering to do something, we obligate ourselves to our word, which is supposed to be our bond. You could look up all the Proverbs on doing what you said. Proverbs 6, one of the tragic fools of youth the folly of youth is the fool the petty the gullible person that becomes a surety for his neighbor he says that he will cover he'll co-sign for his neighbor's uh debt and then when his neighbor defaults he has a debt he can't pay but he wanted to because he wanted to take care of his friend and so he didn't think through his resources or his capabilities and now the wise father in proverbs 6 says you go beg off you go beg the person that you've overcommitted to that they will free you from this obligation, even though uh, you are defaulting on it. 
Um, but uh, you do it to yourself. And this is uh, something some people have we figured this out. Never obligate yourself. Never volunteer. Never sign up for nothing is the advice that the, the clever E3 tells the clever or the, the, the brand new recruit in the army. Private first class says, never, never volunteer. And maybe there's wisdom at some point in that advice, but I bet that the guy that's been there for six years and has already has a rocker under his chevrons at E6 has volunteered for everything he could and done it well. And so figure out where, how you're going to roll, figure out who you're going to be. But um, you also have to manage your obligations. Once you say you're going to do something, we should do it. Jesus said, let our yes be yes, our no be no. Today, we have a volunteer military. Volunteer military. Everybody's doing their duty. It's an obligation by virtue of being born here and then growing up and having a social security number. You have to pay your taxes. That's not a choice uh, that you you can well i voluntarily pay my taxes it's it's a duty but to to sign up and join the military that's a voluntary obligation you place on yourself interestingly if somebody doesn't do that then we miss out on the rest of everything else and that's why we honor the volunteer military that we have but what about in the draft what about when we've drafted in the past wasn't an it wasn't a, a voluntary duty anymore world war ii was one Finally, when America jumped in and tipped the scales, big time with our arsenal, but uh, with our drafted military, we won because of conscription, because of involuntary servitude. Not slavery. I mean, those guys were eating that good with their, with their K-rations and C-rations and freezing themselves to death at Bastogne and all the suffering that our soldiers went through who didn't necessarily sign up for this but they were obligated i'm just illustrating that that sometimes you find yourself in an obligation you volunteered for and sometimes somebody says who has the authority to say do it someone else the letter b someone else obligating me they do it to us when you get drafted when someone with the authority or the right to tell us what to do with our time and our resources when someone with authority assigns a duty to us, we find ourselves bound to fulfill that duty. And this is the difference between uh, Christian thinking or theism and atheism. If I say I don't have to do what God has told me to do, I'm saying he doesn't have the right to tell me and I don't have the responsibility to listen. And that's why obedience is so central to scriptural presentation throughout all dispensations obedience is the basic response of the creature to the fact that he has been created by the creator and so that that's the this is kind of the heart of things when you boil everything down and and i know i know it's been misunderstood that if you obey that somehow transgresses grace because we're not under law romans 6 14 we're not under law but we're under grace we're not transgressing the grace of god to say that his holy spirit empowers us to obey his commands which is where we're going when we look at ephesians 6 1 through 3 so when you talk about christian duty now that we've kind of introduced the concepts we've talked about okay so you've got involuntary that someone in authority says you do this and then i've got voluntary things that i obligate myself to do 
and uh, kind of covenant with others and, and I bear God's image by saying, I will do this and then I go ahead and do this. That's how God is all through the scriptures. He bound, binds himself voluntarily to covenant responsibilities. So which is it for Christian duty? I think it's both. I think some things we volunteered for and we do volunteer for and some things we really are not given an option about, like obeying our parents. First of all, God has obligated us to obey His specific commands, like Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. It's a specific children to parents. I didn't say children to uncles. It's children to their parents, right? doesn't mean children to the random guy on the corner that they're walking past when they go to the candy store. It says their parents. It's specific. So you have specific commands that are, the, are obligated. B, God's also obligated us to general commands, which we must... Con- consider as to how we're going to obey them you got to think it through like okay so god tells me to make disciples that's a general statement everybody's responsible for matthew 28 19 and 20 to be part of the mission that the lord jesus christ has established for this church in obedience to god the father the body of christ has a mission our marching orders are with the holy spirit's power we're to make disciples by baptizing them that's evangelism the completion of the evangelism process and by teaching them to keep, observe all that the Lord Jesus has commanded. So, so how will I do that? I mean, I could talk about the specifics of those things. Like some people say, well, we're just doing the mission. We're just building the kingdom. Well, what do you mean? Because if, you, if your efforts are not directly connecting somehow to evangelism or disciple making through teaching, then we're not really doing Jesus' mission. Oh, but I'm feeding the poor. Yeah, but are you feeding the poor to the toward the goal of evangelism and discipleship. Where's your evangelism thing happening in your feeding, the poor? That kind of thing. I mean, that's, that's the way the mission works. Let's, let's connect it back to what Jesus has said. Well, I just, I'm just trying to help. Everybody's just trying to help. We're talking about a specific Christian mission. So, but in that specific, there's the general. My favorite illustration is the air crew. It's the, it's the ground team that works on the aircraft in, uh, in Papua New Guinea, in the city, I forget the name of the city, but where they, they've got six airplanes that fly up into the mountains and resupply um, Wes and Penny Chapel. To have airplane ass, I have no idea what the, the business model of this looks like. I have no idea what it's like. I'd love to go see it sometime. That's one of the, the thousands of things I'd like to do someday. But I, I, I have to imagine that um, what we're doing is some sort of missionary endeavor where somebody is maintenance capable and, I mean, aircraft maintenance, that's a whole different level of responsibility than auto maintenance. It's the same type of thing. They're turning wrenches. They're making sure they go through inspections. But this thing has to survive up in the mountains. And bush pilotry, bush piloting, that's, that's scary stuff. That's landing an airplane where we don't really want to land a helicopter sometimes. And so think about the person that is signing off on the maintenance update. For this aircraft that's going to go supply Wes and Penny. Is he part of the mission? I hope he knows he is. I hope he's doing it on mission. But those, uh, Yano, um, no, those um, um, Minya people are not going to read their New Testaments that Wes has translated into the language that he gave them their alphabet and has shown them how to read their language and now they're reading the Bible. They're never going to do that unless Wes eats unless Wes has petrol or gasoline to run his generators so that he can do the things that he needs to do for basic subsistence. This resupply mission is part of the big mission. 
And it directly affects evangelism and discipling of the many people. And so that's my one illustration. Did you want to go into Christian ministry? How about aircraft maintenance? See what I mean? How about aircraft maintenance? How about manufacture? How about, um, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's actually a real challenge to have aircraft assets. It's very, very expensive to purchase and operate. The infrastructure necessary to do this. I mean, I don't know how much money is being spent per minya convert, but God does, and I think he's pleased because this is a good use of his resources. So uh, the, the young man that's gifted and capable mechanically and says, I want to serve the Lord, but really I love to work on cars and I, I just love to turn wrenches, but I really want to serve the Lord, and he's in this dilemma. Well, there doesn't have to be a dilemma, right? He could say, uh... I want to serve the Lord in this specific way. And he then can obligate himself to work and see if this goes. And then it's a temporary or long-term obligation. He says, I'm going to go try to do aircraft maintenance for resupply for Wes and Penny, just for example. And, and I don't have another good example that comes to mind, so I like to use this one um, because I'm fascinated with the concept of aircraft assets used to uh, resupply missionaries who are evangelizing uh, Stone Age tribal people that never read a word and yet now they're reading in their own language which has been reduced to writing <clears throat> so we have general commands like the great commission and then we have to think how we'll obey them and then see we obligate ourselves regarding the specifics of how we'll do these commands so i you know did a big one when i when we drove up here me and krista two dogs and two cats in a pontiac vibe what a great trip that was it was fantastic. We let it, we just took our time, took three days. Couldn't believe we already saw crossing George Washington Bridge. What in the world? We started in East Texas and we just are crossing the George Washington Bridge to start a new life in Connecticut. Now this is a specific way to do what God has commanded in the Great Commission. Is it not? It's a specific way. It was, that was one of those dramatic moments in your life. We were in contact with Mike and Sue because staying at the Shea Regal uh, uh, pastor quarters. And, and as we're coming through, we're like, wow, we're in New York. Like, oh, our yard in New York. And, and so we didn't realize quite as well that that's only two and a half hours away. I mean, we're almost there considering we've already been 26 hours on the road. So um, what a fantastic an enjoyable day that was uh, to, to get here and, and start getting ready for, um, for that first Sunday. Well, that's a specific way of obligating oneself to voluntarily obligating oneself to the specific commands of Scripture. And I think we need to think about that. What, well, the Bible doesn't say that I have to make food. The Bible doesn't say that I have to come to prayer meeting or whatever it is. These are all voluntary things that you don't have specific commands in Scripture to do. But the question is, what are you doing regarding the general statements? What, we, what I intend to do is work out ways we can do the specific ones and invite, equip, welcome. But number four, I want you to think of Ephesians 6, 1 through 3 in terms of how these obligations work, specifics in general. <coughs> Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Or I would better translate that righteous. Dikaios is righteous. God declares it righteous. It matches his justice. So I think that the who is very specific, children and parents. See what I mean? Children and parents. And we saw Wednesday night, the word for children is not little children in training in, in elementary school. 
It's the word for people born from someone else. Uh, and so it can mean just, it can mean all of us in this room. It can mean all of us in this room. That'd get a little uncomfortable because we're not all in our parents' household. This is the household code in Ephesians 6 or 5, 19 through 6, 9. And so in context, it is talking about children under the parental household. And so there's an obedience that's expected because of the household responsibilities for the householders. The household's supposed to serve the Lord. So the children need to obey the parents in the serving and obedience of the Lord. And that's the idea. But this is specific. It doesn't mean neighbor's children. And it doesn't mean all children are to obey all adults. Although we do understand a respect for elders and a training of children to have this sense. We really do. But it's not talking about that in this command. It's saying children obey your parents. Now what? What are they supposed to do? You can ask any passage of Scripture, the who, what, when, where, why questions, and, and think it through. There's all kinds of great insights you get in terms of observation. The what? Obey? Is that a specific or a general command? I think it's kind of general. Obey your parents? See, I, I love when people overthink things. They're like, what are the specific things that the children are supposed to do that the parents are then only that is what they're supposed to talk about? No, there is a frame in which parents are responsible to operate and they better not leave that frame of their responsibilities to their children. You can't, you're not supposed to tell them to sin, for example. In fact, verse four is going to say, parents don't lead your children to sin. Fathers don't provoke them to anger. But, but in the frame of righteousness, there's a broad set of responsibilities. And I think number one is learn when God is in charge and he puts an obligation on you, you're responsible to do it. Learning basic duty, I think is job one for parents to train children. Learn that there's somebody in charge and I need to do what they say when they have the right to say it. So I think obey is a fairly general command, but it's specific in terms of who does it. Now, how will they do it? With what attitude will they do it? It's in the Lord. See, that's the key to the wives and husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands in the Lord. This is as unto the Lord. You're doing this, and this is the big insight for why it's a Christian obligation. Parents are supposed to be training their children, but children are supposed to be in the submission to God, in the power of the Holy Spirit, obeying their parents for the Lord's sake, for God's sake. That's, that's how it's supposed to be. In other words, watch what this means. Watch the implication here. It means that they're not obeying me for me. They're obeying me for God. It's not about me. Go figure. I thought it was about me. I mean, work to feed them, train them, have to go up the stairs every 10 minutes and say, stop it. But it's not about me. It's about God. And they're supposed to obey me for his sake. They're doing this as worship to him. Think about the alternative. It gets kind of ugly. If obedience of children is worship, then it better be that they're worshiping God, right? It's not a real problem in our culture that children worship their parents. But notice what, what, what we in our arrogance would, would kind of think as parents. You need to do this because I said, well, that's true, but only because they're doing it for the Lord. And my kids know very well when they say why, they already know the answer. And we have a little drill we go through. Can you tell me the first reason why? Because you said, 
Because they're learning duty. They're learning there's an obligation that God has placed on them, and it's really about him. I need to be reminded of this a lot. My children need to obey me, and, I, and no question about it. They must. They must obey me. But it's not for my sake. It's for God's sake. It's so much more important than I'm respected or that I'm honored or that I feel disrespected or dishonored. It's so much bigger. It's about the honor of God. Why? Why in verse 1 must children obey their parents? Because this is righteous. This is pleasing to God. This is coordinate with His character. And so our little children in the power of the Holy Spirit can actually be righteous in their actions before God only if they obey their parents. Notice what we're saying. If the children are disobedient and they get away with it, notice what that means. That they do not bring forth in their Holy Spirit-empowered lives the righteousness of God in their actions. So, Again, I mean, this is a totally new way of thinking. I mean, we know the kids have to mind. But more than this, they need to worship God in their actions because it brings forth the character of God uh, in, 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 in our, not just in our hearts, but in our hands. When must they do this? This is the big one. This is the big one. Everybody says, okay, everyone in the room, um, my parents would rather, as adults, as an adult child, my parents would rather I didn't do this one thing, but all my life uh, circumstances and wisdom together are saying I should do this thing, but they're saying that they don't want me to do this thing, whatever it is. So does verse 1 apply? I'm an adult child, not in my parents' household. Am I then responsible to obey them with this particular issue? Um, I want to refinance, refinance my house uh, at a lower percentage APR, and I know it's going to cost about $3,000 to do that. And my dad's saying, don't do that. Don't do it. He hangs up angry. I'm better at math. You know, I mean, it's, it, it, we're going to do this for a long time. Don't do this. Well, I better listen to his wisdom as an adult child. He's my father. I need to honor him. By the way, this conversation never happened. But, I, but I'm just imagining with you, I need to honor my father. I need to be respectful of him. I need to listen to him and give it a full hearing and maybe more weight than even I would tend to give some of the math that I know is true. But you know, the thing is that 4% is way better than 4.75 and it might be worth it over time if I look at the spreadsheet since I'm just getting started. And so he, he's not going to deal with this. I've got to deal with this. And so I fully weigh him where he should be, but it's not his decision. And so I'm not going to obey him in the sense of, he said, don't get the mortgage refinance. I'm going to, okay, in this case, I'm going to respectfully disagree and honor him as I do what I think I'm supposed to do. And it's not disobedience. Now, some parents want to do that. Some parents of adult children, they try to, they try to keep, keep them down. Because they haven't figured out from the very beginning the little three-year-old obeying you wasn't about you. And they're used to that feedback, that honor, and it's not the point. They're, they're missing the point. And uh, so I think one of the great horrors would be adult children that can't make decisions uh, without being commanded by their, their aging parents. But I think the win of when children obey their parents in the Lord is when they're in their household by, listen, context. 
He's going through wives and husbands, children and fathers, slaves and masters, called the household code. This is because parents have a responsibility for that household, and that's their job. But we all know then common sense does tell us there's a time when our responsibilities have been fulfilled. And that and common sense says, let's... And, and use some common sense. You have wisdom. You know, think about this. And so um, within the household... Um, and then, and I would say this changes as the kids grow up, doesn't it? Doesn't your 12-year-old have a little bit different treatment than your three-year-old? Does, don't you need to treat him differently? Why? Because you're training him. Because the, th- the 12-year-old, her, let's just switch to her. I just imagine what that'd be like. The 12-year-old, she needs to think. And if she's constantly being told what to think, she might just kind of lean on that crutch a little more than she needs to. She, she needs to think, and you need to, but the 12-year-old's not 20. You got to review the thinking and go through it with her and, and develop this rapport where we're, you can trust me, and, and let's think this through, and let's drill this. Let's, let's imagine. You're not having that conversation with a three-year-old. I mean, believe me, I've tried. You want to, <laughs> but you can't because they need to just get some real fundamental basics down, right? The ABCs, but, but at 12 they better be doing some responsible, making responsible choices. And you should be watching them and training them and, and guiding them through that. It's just different uh, the way obedience works as people change in their lives. And, uh, and you, do want, you do want, we do want our kids to go fly, All right, we want, them to, we want them to go build their nest, right? I mean, ultimately, in life, you use the bird illustration. You don't want the kids to be constantly... Uh, looking back and saying, how do we do this? How do we, how do we, how do we do? Four or five phone calls a day as we get started is, is, a, is a good, maybe a good platform. But eventually, hey, you're going to have to go talk to the loan person and figure out your own refinance. Did you know that I actually have a life to live? I've got work to do and I've trained you. I've spent all my time in the last 30 years training you into this. You go figure out your refinance. See what I mean? You can't, uh, you can't discount the value of a grown child who becomes truly your friend, which is, I think, one of, one of the great blessings in life I do look forward to and pray for. It doesn't say where this is to happen. What do you think about where this happens? Children, obey your parents and Lord. Where does this happen? This is a question I asked the text that I think there's a common sense answer that... Uh, I think it's awesome. Now, let's put it back in the household. They're children in your training. You're training them up, right? You're raising them up to fear the Lord in verse 4. And so it's household code, training children stuff. Now, young children, where are they supposed to obey you? Huh? In the mall? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Foxworthy talks about uh, going to the cereal aisle. The kids are fine until they get to the cereal aisle and then they lose their minds and they're throwing themselves on the floor and throwing a fit and he'll walk up to them and say, where are your parents? You know. <laughs> now that's when you're with them, right? They're supposed to obey you. I once went on a camping trip with the Boy Scout troop um, to another state. Out-of-state camping trip. My parents didn't go. I was 13 or 14. My parents and I were, have always been very close and so this was a you know what you're doing kind of thing. I had my tape player, my Bible tapes, and uh, my, my uh, batteries and, and headphones all set up. Not because they told me to, because I wanted to. 
And I did listen to a tape every day on that camping trip, but almost every day. But my mother said to me, before, she, before I left, she said, we do not have enough medical insurance to pay for any of your uh, uh, 14-year-old uh, things. And so you're going to have to do, uh, uh, control yourself with a couple of issues. Do not jump off of anything into any body of water. She said that to me. Do not jump off of any, any high place into any body of water. And I said, fair enough. Okay, I won't jump, jump off of anything into any body of water. And I was a child in my parents' house. I was going to obey my parents. I'd figured this out. Sometimes the hard way, things got easier as I learned. You know, this is how to do it. And so we get to Albert Pike, uh, uh, Arkansas. Guess what? On day one, at the swimming hole in the river, there is. There is a cliff. It is six or eight feet above the water of unknown depth. That's key. Nobody had a snorkel and mask. Nobody's measuring the depth. Nobody knows where the, where the good spots are. We're just, they're just playing blackjack with their lives. These guys are jumping off the cliffs and calling me, Rose, let's go, jump in the water, jump in the water. And you know what? I didn't do it. I wanted to. They, Pastor Dave, what a great kid you were. Now, just think about this. They wanted me to. I wanted to. Everybody, I had tested it 10 times. Everybody lived. You know, nobody got their neck broken. But my mother had told me not to. And there was something about me when I was 14 that isn't necessarily true. Wasn't necessarily true when I was 13, maybe. By the time I was at Albers Pike, um, Arkansas, with this Boy Scout troop, I thought God really cared about the decisions that I made. And I was actually scared to jump off the cliff because my mother had told me no. And I thought, I think legitimately that that would be a curse to me somehow. I will not like what happeneth. (laughs) I'd had enough experiences by that time to say, don't do it. It won't go well with thee. Like it says here where Paul quotes the Septuagint that it'll go well with you. So uh, this is our time this morning. We've got... um, We've gotten through most of the bullet number four. We'll pick this up next time. But I, I think that if you, if you ask the Bible some questions on some pretty simple passages, it tells you a lot more than you, than you might have thought. I'm not trying to pull things out it doesn't say. But just teaching our kids to have that sense of duty, that obligation, and especially when they're mature enough to make decisions to obligate themselves, that this becomes something you do for the Lord in his power. Father, we praise you for eternal life. We thank you for the filling of your Holy Spirit and his, enable, and his enablement for us to serve you in the way that pleases you. It's all your grace from beginning to end. And we ask that you strengthen us in our fellowship time to encourage one another to walk worthy of our calling. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We will start on time at 1030. Be there, be square. Go get some coffee.